Since 2003, both ACOG and SMFM have endorsed the use of injectable progesterone, remember that's 17-hydroxyprogesterone, for the prevention of preterm birth in patients with a previous history of preterm delivery or those found to have a total cervical length of less than 2.5 centimeters. Boy, do things move fast. Since the release of the prolonged trial and now release of the EPIC trial in March of 2021, the whole issue of progesterone has gotten a little cloudy and a little confusing. So in this session, we're going to review the upcoming August 2021 new publication from ACOG on the prevention of preterm birth. And we're going to focus on this whole progesterone issue because once you actually take a look at it, it's not as confusing as you might think. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. BirthTracks.com What is BirthTracks.com? It's an online platform for medical students, residents, OBGYNs, and midwives to track important information about their birth and procedure outcomes. And listen to this. If you are a student or resident, BirthTracks.com is completely free to use for an entire year. Why BirthTracks? Because it allows for accountability for improved patient outcomes. It helps identify areas in need of quality improvement, and you can use these stats to grow and promote your practice or just grow and track your training. Intrigued? I'm going to give you more information about BirthTracks.com a little bit later on in this podcast. The last time ACOG did a practice bulletin on the prevention of preterm birth, it was back in October of 2012. My goodness, it's been a while. So in August of 2021, ACOG will release practice bulletin number 234, which is being summarized and highlighted here. Preterm birth, of course, is defined as any delivery occurring at or after 20 weeks and zero days, but before 37 weeks and zero days. Preterm birth also is divided into early and late time periods. Early preterm birth occurs before 34 weeks and late preterm birth occurs between 34 and zero and 36 and six weeks of gestation. There are notable racial and ethnic disparities in the preterm birth rate in the U.S. In 2019, white women had a preterm birth rate of 9.3%, while Hispanic women had a preterm birth rate of 10%. Non-Hispanic black women had a preterm birth rate that was about 50% higher than both of those at about 14.4%. Rates of preterm birth do remain higher for non-Hispanic black and indigenous women than for white, Asian, or Hispanic women, and they're not all explained by just social determinants of health and education. So here's a weird clinical pearl. Strikingly, preterm birth rates are higher for non-Hispanic black women who have higher educational attainment than for non-Hispanic white, Asian, or Hispanic women who have lower educational attainment. So it's not just these social determinants of health or other factors at play here. Several risk factors for preterm birth are potentially modifiable, including low maternal pre-pregnancy weight, smoking, substance use, and short interpregnancy interval. A maternal pre-pregnancy BMI less than 18.5 has been associated with an increased risk of preterm birth. Of course, tobacco use is associated with an increased risk of preterm birth as well, likely through vasoconstrictive and hypoxia-mediated pathways. 
a number of studies have found that the inner pregnancy interval, remember that's the end of one pregnancy to the beginning of the next, of less than 18 months, is associated with preterm birth. So remind patients of these very important and modifiable risks. Now, if you're ever asked, um, what's the biggest predictor of subsequent preterm birth? Well, here's the answer. Remember that it's prior history. A history of preterm birth is a very strong predictor of subsequent preterm birth. The number of prior preterm births and the degree of prematurity at that prior birth significantly affect the recurrence risk of preterm delivery. A preterm birth that's then followed by a birth at term, however, does have a lower risk than if the opposite occurred. And as we wrap up this quick discussion on risks of preterm birth, remember that preterm birth rate is much higher in multiple gestations than it is for singletons. Okay, here's a nice clinical pearl too, so remember this. Even though there are those known risk factors, both modifiable and not modifiable, and one thing that we didn't discuss is a short cervix, which we'll talk about in a minute, but of course a short cervix is another strong predictor of preterm birth. Even women without those risk factors, remember that all pregnant women are at risk for preterm delivery, and about 5% of nulliparous individuals will end up having a spontaneous preterm birth. So even though it's important to take a detailed history, that's why the history alone can miss some people because no one is immune to the potential of preterm birth possibility. Don't forget to go to birthtracks.com. This is so easy to use. This is your personal data entry tool designed for providers to quickly enter birth data at 2 a.m. It only takes one to two minutes on your mobile phone or your computer. This is a way to keep all your personal OB outcomes data all on one dashboard. Vaginal birth counts, primary cesarean rates, operative vaginal births, emergency cesarean rates, postpartum hemorrhages, VBAC success rates, vaginal lacs, NICU admissions, preterm birth rates, low APGARs, and even breastfeeding stats. As an added plus, it allows you to customize your data collection so you get to decide what kind of outcomes you want to track. Get the stats that you need easily and quickly with no need to go through the process of medical record reviews or hand calculating from a birth log. Birthtracks.com actually allows you to use the platform for free for 60 days. And as we stated before, if you're a student or a resident, it's free for an entire year. So go to birthtracks.com now and get started for free for better accountability, better tracking, and better patient care. Now, before we get into this issue of progesterone, we've got to talk about cervical length screening because that's super important. Remember that that is one of the ACOG and SMFM adopted strategies to assess the risk of preterm birth. Now, there's two ways to do this. You can do this as a universal screen that we're going to talk about, which ACOG does endorse. That should be done around 18 to 22 weeks. The cervix should always be looked at when you're doing a fetal anatomical survey ultrasound. Then there's a transvaginal ultrasound for cervical length as a triage assessment tool. This is done in patients who present between 24 and up to 34 weeks with signs or symptoms of labor. And these are the patients that can get a transvaginal ultrasound for cervical length. And if it's less than 2.5 centimeters, that would trigger the FFN protocol. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Regarding cervical length ultrasound, remember this should be done endovaginally, not transabdominal. Endovaginal is the preferred. But ACOG even has something to say about a transabdominal approach, and I'll tell you that in just a moment. But ACOG does recommend universal between 18 weeks and zero days and 22 weeks and six days cervical length assessment at time of the fetal anatomical survey even in singleton pregnancies with no prior preterm birth. In other words, like a nullagravid patient. For pregnancies that are singleton, but that have a prior history of preterm birth, ACOG adds the following caveat to that. Consider serial cervical length assessments every one to four weeks. And that frequency really is dependent on the initial size or length of that cervical determination. This can be done as early as 16 weeks and can be done all the way up until 24 weeks and zero days. Now, I know what you're thinking. We've mentioned singletons, but what about multiple gestations? Well, ACOG does recommend that we check the cervix ultrasonographically, that cervical length, even in multiple gestations at the same gestational age, 18 weeks and zero days, up to 22 weeks and six days. However, ACOG does note that there's been no intervention that's actually found to be beneficial should you find a short cervix. So, 17-hydroxyprogesterone, vaginal progesterone, cerclage. None of those have actually been found to be very helpful, so we're kind of stuck. But ACOG does recommend, even in multiple gestations, that universal cervical screen between 18 and 22 weeks and 6 days. Although different studies have used different total cervical lengths based on endovaginal or transvaginal assessment, some studies have used 30 millimeters, others 25 millimeters, and then others 20 millimeters, the ACOG recognizes the cutoff of 25 millimeters or 2.5 centimeters of total cervical length as the cutoff for defining what is a short cervix when it's done by transvaginal or endovaginal approach. Before we leave this issue of transvaginal or endovaginal ultrasound, a quick word about transabdominal approach. Remember, transvaginal is the preferred, that is the gold standard. And then a drop down from that can be transperineal, but transvaginal is the best, even in placenta previa patients. But transabdominal ultrasound can, and it's recognized by the college, serve as kind of a screen. You just have to make your cutoffs much, much longer. A transabdominal cervical length threshold of 36 millimeters or 3.6 centimeters can identify up to 96% of patients who will end up with a cervical length of 25 millimeters if you do an endovag image at the same time. And if your transabdominal cervical length is 35 millimeters or less, or 3.5 centimeters, then 100% of those patients will have a cervical length of 20 millimeters or less when you do endovaginal ultrasound. So remember, if you're going to do transabdominal, you've got to increase your cutoffs. And I just use a 3.6 centimeter cutoff because if it's greater than 3.6, you can pretty much avoid a transvaginal approach. ACOG says that using these cutoffs, you can actually avoid endovaginal ultrasound in about 40% of patients because they'll have cutoffs that are greater than that. But if it's 3.6 millimeters or less, you've got to go to transvaginal because a significant number of those will have a cervical length of 2.5 centimeters or below. All right, podcast family, don't be mad. 
let's leave progesterone for part two. I know I said we're going to cover it, and I am, but I think we've covered a lot of information already, and I want that to settle in. But when we come back in part two, we're going to address the 2020 prolonged trial that really threw a wrench in this whole thing. Then in March of 2021 came the epic trial. And again, the information was, well, a little bit more confusing. Well, ACOG finally put all of that together, and we're going to make that real simple coming up in part two next. So thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.